What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we wrap up our series on the miracles of Jesus. We have looked at Jesus healing the blind, the sick, and the demon-possessed. Then last week we looked at at miracles in nature and how Jesus controlled not only winds and waves, but also could multiply food. He fed 5,000 men with just five loaves of bread and two fish. It was a miracle of abundance. And God reminds us that even when we are at our lowest, even when we feel like we have nothing, God will provide. We need to remind ourselves and each other about this. Now we look at one final category of Jesus' miracles, and that is raising people from the dead. Not only did Jesus rise after being crucified, but there are also several stories of others being raised from the dead too. Carol is going to read for us. We are going to look at one particular story of a man raised from the dead. One reason this story is famous is because it contains the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus was crying because his close friend Lazarus had died. It all seemed rather strange, though, because Jesus knew his friend was sick, but instead of going immediately to heal him, Jesus waits two days. Why does he wait? It is to reveal the glory of God. Let's hear the account. This is John chapter 11, verses 38 through 53. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, But I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caliphus, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. And from 1 Kings 17, 21 and 22, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, 
the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts and lives today to understand what resurrection means for us. Bless us, and now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember the first time I saw a dead body. Growing up, I had gone to very few funerals and never one with an open casket. So I was in my 20s about to start working in a hospital, having never once seen a dead person in real life. We were taking a tour of the facility, seeing all all the the behind-the-scenes parts that make the hospital run when we came to the morgue. A group of us were huddled together in a small hallway with a door in front of us about to open. As the hospital chaplain opened it, the first thing I noticed was how terribly small the room was. It was hardly large enough to fit a single hospital bed in it. As the chaplain talked about what the room was used for and how rarely we would even need to go to the morgue in the first place, my attention was focused on the dead body laying right in front of us. There is something about the human body after we die that looks decidedly inhuman. There are obvious changes like our breathing stopping and not moving anymore, but if you've never seen a a body outside of a funeral home where the body is all done up, you might not know the other changes. Without blood flowing through our bodies, our skin color changes, our eyes become opaque, and the, the body cools down, causing everything to stiffen called rigor mortis. It starts in our hearts and then extends to the neck and jaw. Even our eyelids get stiff, which is why you always see people in the movies push a person's eyelids down after they die. I felt disturbed looking at this random dead person with everyone so casually looking on. This was a human being, someone's son or brother. Why were we all so nonchalant about it? When we finished our tour of the morgue and headed back to our classroom setting, they they asked us about it, and I actually complained. I, I felt like our tour was disrespectful, not only to the deceased, but also to the family of that individual. There should be a dignity, a respect, and decorum that always accompanies the presence of a human body. I remember the chaplain, who was at least 30 years my senior, apologizing, saying perhaps they were too used to death in the hospital. Looking back on it, I am surprised he entertained my complaint. I can see now just how young and uncomfortable with death I was. Having never seen a dead body, I had no idea what to do or what to feel. It was like there was nothing anyone could do that was right because someone had died. After several months in the hospital, I think I quickly got used to death. I was in the biggest hospital in West Philly with gunshot wounds just about every other day. Death was inevitable in a place like that. But I am grateful for all that I learned. I've met with countless families that have lost loved ones and many times sat with people as their loved ones were dying. Many of you know I cry rather easily and I have shed many tears with families as they have grieved. Everyone deals with loss differently. I cry, others go silent or talk too much or even laugh and make jokes to deal with their loss. 
One story in particular that stands out to me is a woman who was put on hospice care and brought to her daughter's home. Her daughter, Pat, was a member of the church, and she wanted to spend the last few weeks with her mother close by. When Pat's mom was near death, she called me to come and visit. As we talked with her mother in the parlor, Pat asked if I would read Psalm 23. I said that I would, but that I would read it from a different version called The Message. You might be familiar with the line from the psalm that says, The Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We don't usually think about that line too much, but in the message it says, You serve a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. It's about how good God treats us because of his never-ending love for us. Just as I read that line, though, Pat's mom took her last breath and died. Pat turned to me and said, You told her there was a six-course meal in heaven for her, and she couldn't wait any longer. I thought to myself, there is nothing more Methodist than someone saying they couldn't wait to get to heaven to eat a good dinner. Pat must have told that story 50 times as she told, uh, said goodbye to her mother over the next few weeks. Mom just couldn't wait to get to heaven. Pastor told her there was a six-course meal for her, and away she went. It's how Pat grieved her mother. Many people have heard of the five stages of grief that goes from denial to anger to bargaining, then depression and finally acceptance. Since then, we've realized there are actually a couple more steps in grieving. Before acceptance happens, there is an upward turn where the anger and pain subside. Then we have to reconstruct our world to try and put the pieces back together. Acceptance isn't something that happens overnight. It can take years before a person can find a new normal after losing someone close to them. But usually, we eventually reach a point of acceptance. The world is different from it was because someone we love is no longer in it. They have died, and there is nothing we can do to change it. Yet with Jesus, we see something wildly different. The death of a person is not simply accepted. Sometimes with Jesus, death leads to an unimaginable reversal. At the start of John 11, we hear about Lazarus becoming ill. Now, most religious people would visit and pray for the sick. We still do this today, but there is something else going on with Jesus. He is known as a healer, so by informing him that Lazarus is sick, they are very politely asking him to come and heal Lazarus. We may not know who Lazarus is at this point in the story, but Jesus clearly does. Mary sent a message saying, he whom you love is ill. Jesus loves Lazarus, yet when he is informed that he is ill, Jesus waits. Lazarus's home is maybe 20 miles away, and if Jesus tried hard, he might have been able to make it in a day. But instead, he seems to do nothing for two whole days. It's like he wants Lazarus to die. Martha is another sister of Lazarus, and when Jesus finally shows up, she seems to think something similar. She says, Lord, if you had been there, uh, my brother would not have died. But then she goes on, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. What an incredible sign of faith she shows. And, and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. 
Sounds pretty hopeful, doesn't it? Martha knows that God is with Jesus. God will heal through Jesus. Yet when Jesus says Lazarus will rise again, Martha hears something else. She hears Jesus teaching that at the end of history, all of God's faithful people will be raised from the dead. And Martha goes and gets her sister Mary. Mary says the same thing as Martha. If only you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. And she weeps. She is so distraught over the death of her brother, and Jesus weeps with her. Even as beautiful as this is, though, as these people whose hearts are knit together, who love this man Lazarus and mourn together, there is this cynicism at work. The verse right before what we read today says, But some of them said, Could not Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying Why couldn't the miracle worker save him? Why did Jesus take so long anyways? Maybe they're even thinking that Jesus is simply a fraud, conjuring up some magic tricks to to deceive the people. But when it really matters, Jesus is powerless. Jesus can't control life and death, they think. In the Old Testament, there are, are a few stories of people being raised from the dead. They are all in 1 and 2 Kings one uh, once by Elijah and once by his protege, Elisha. Each story, though, is about a young person brought back to life. One is the son of a widow, and the other is a boy who complains of pain in his head, then lies down and dies. Elisha, though, revives him. Only once is there an older person who is dead, carried in a funeral procession, brought back to life simply by being in the presence of Elisha's body. So resurrection is very, very rare in the Old Testament. With Jesus, there are a couple of other stories. One is a funeral procession of the son of a widow. Uh, Jesus stops the procession, and the young person is raised back to life. Then there's a 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter, who is dead, and Jesus simply commands her, My child, get up. And she does. This might all seem too fantastic, but should we reject it as impossible? Sure, people have faked such things, but resurrections today are not unheard of. Antoinette was a mother in the Republic of Congo whose daughter was bit by a snake. By the time the mother got to her daughter, she was unresponsive and seemed to have stopped breathing. With no medical help nearby, she carried her daughter three hours to the next village. When she arrived, the local church evangelist met her, prayed for her daughter, and she immediately began breathing. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, says he prayed for a man that had no pulse, and after he and a few other men prayed for him, his heartbeat and speech returned. Wesley says of it, if you see a natural cause here, fine, but for me, this is the power of God. There's another wild story of a deacon in the Congo. A boy had died, and after bringing this dead child to several witch doctors, he rebuked them for not bringing the child to the living God first. He prayed for half an hour, and the boy was revived. Soon the same thing happened. A girl died, and the people brought the child back to the deacon. But this time, the deacon wasn't home. Instead, they recruited his wife to pray for the child. When she prayed, the child was immediately revived. When the deacon and his wife were interviewed, someone asked how many other people they had prayed for to come back to life. They said, none, ever. These two were the only times in their whole life. You might hear this and think, this is too much. I can't believe this. 
And I understand the skepticism. We live in a society that says miracles aren't real. And we have to see it for ourselves to believe it. I'm right there with you. I always start with skepticism for such claims. And only when there is overwhelming proof would I even start to entertain belief. I tell you these stories not to convince you that these particular resurrections are real, but to open you up to possibility, to hope. Mary and Martha were very likely the same people to wrap Jesus's, uh, Lazarus's body up. They would have taken long, thin strips of cloth and bound his arms and legs in a, in a straight position. A face cloth, a foot square, would have covered his mouth and nose. They knew beyond doubt Lazarus was dead. When Jesus said Lazarus would live, they heard him speaking of the end time and they wept because he was most assuredly dead. They would have seen it in his body as his skin changed and rigor mortis set in. His body stinks. It's been four days. If only Jesus had been there sooner. But now it is too late. Healing of someone alive is very different from resurrection of the dead, isn't it? And yet, as Jesus tells them to remove the stone covering the entrance to the grave, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out. The immediate response is overwhelming belief in Jesus. This is incredible, but the religious leaders can't stand it. They don't know what to do. But one man, the high priest Caiaphas, says, You know nothing. It is better for one man to die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed by the Roman Empire. Right there, Caiaphas describes what the eventual death and resurrection of Jesus will mean to the whole world. Not only will one or two or a few dozen people come back to life, but Jesus himself will, pointing to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God sent to save the world from sin and death. Resurrection is not just about one person's life being saved from death. It is about all people being saved from, not so much from a, a physical death, which will come to all of us eventually, this is about spiritual life. This is about life with God forever. I know some of you will remain skeptics. You'll ask, why does God bring back uh, one person to life and, and not others? Why did God not intervene in my situation with my loved one? And the answer is, I have absolutely no idea why. Uh, Dr. Craig Keener says, miracles seem to flourish where the gospel is breaking new ground. They happen where they advance the cause of faith, not the will or needs of a particular person or group. Even in our desire for our loved ones to be the one brought back to us, we know we've made it about us. The resurrections we're talking about today, though, have an impact well beyond you and me. I think of Evelyn, she joined our church as a member last year, and just last week, I was told she was in the hospital. I went to visit with her, and she told me she had been diagnosed with cancer. I felt for her and was ready to grieve this diagnosis with her, but instead, I found she had a very different response. She was not denying or angry, bargaining or depressed. She had already accepted what was happening in her body. She told me whatever happens to her physically, she is with the Lord. 
Despite her pain, she knows that God loves her and will never, ever let her go. That is what resurrection teaches us. It's one more way faith is built up as God says, trust me. I've already got you in the palm of my hand. Don't fret, don't worry, don't agonize over what may happen to you. Simply trust that the whole world is under God's authority. Evil does not rule this place. Wrongdoers will not dictate the final word. Sin and death do not have power over us. God alone does. And God chooses to bring honor and glory to himself. To prove once again that Christ is king over life and death and no other can compare. Now let me share one final story. In West Palm Beach, Jeff had suffered a massive heart attack. His death certificate had already been signed and his extremities were turning black from the change in his blood vessels. Dr. Crandall, a cardiologist at the hospital, had a distinct urge from God to pray for this man out loud despite him being dead for 40 minutes. After praying, he asked a colleague to shock Jeff with the defibrillator pads one more time. And after the jolt of electricity, his heart started beating again. It's incredible, but when you know the rest of the story, it only seems even more impossible. Years before, Dr. Crandall had a son who had been diagnosed with leukemia. When his son had died, he prayed as passionately as any parent for their child to come back. And it did not happen. He wept and mourned the death of his child, yet he had to decide if he would continue to trust God with his life or not. When the time came after Jeff's heart attack, Dr. Crandall said yes to God. He decided to believe and pray and let Christ be king. Not himself, not anyone or anything else, just God alone. Dr. Crandall let God be in charge and a miracle of resurrection took place. May the same be true for you. May you let God be king of your life so that faith in God may do what seems impossible in you and through you and into the world. This life, this church, this body of believers are not working on our own doing our own thing. We are here to see the kingdom of God come in me and you and everyone we meet. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.